would you start it here this morning in each of our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've been with us, we've been walking through what's famously known as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And whoever sees me there, I'm just going to pray for you. So if you want to find in a copy of the scriptures, Matthew 5, we'll be picking up, walking through the Sermon on the Mount. And we are at the point where we get to talk about mercy. We get to talk about mercy. So hear this. First of all, mercy is both a demand and a gift. Augustine, the fourth century renowned theologian in North Africa, he prayed. He prayed to God, demand what you will and give what you demand. So we're going to see that disciples, followers of Jesus, in fact, are to, to show mercy because we, as followers of Christ, have received mercy. So that's where we'll be today. That's going to be the focus of our time this morning, looking at mercy. So maybe just thinking, what, what comes to mind when you hear mercy or think of mercy, just, just in general, in your life to this point, experiencing mercy? I think of some of my earliest memories of my brother and I playing this hand-fighting game that was called Mercy. And you would interlock hands, and the first one to be able to wrap the other's hand under and, and you know, uh, push their, their wrists back, and then the one would have to cry out mercy for, to get the other one to stop. So is anybody familiar with that? I can't remember. Okay, good. I didn't know if my brother had just created it as a way to, to hurt me. And I remember that. Uh, another famous maybe reference to mercy, if you're familiar with the, the film Braveheart, uh, the telling of the Scottish freedom fighters, and William Wallace, the main character, you know, being, being tortured. And they're saying, if you just cry out mercy, it, it'll all end. Your pain will end. And his other freedom fighters kind of in the crowd, you know, hiding in the crowd. And the, the camera pans to them, and they're under their breath saying, mercy, mercy. You know, they want him to, to end it and say mercy. And he famously does not cry out mercy. He cries out freedom. Uh, but mercy. It is something, what's been, again, just thinking of what's been your experience of mercy, your understanding of mercy, Trevin Wax is a Christian author, and he entitled, or um, excuse me, posted an article this week, in fact, entitled, Mercilessness in the Name of Mercy, and it was interesting, because as I was looking at this, and I think in our age, in, even within the church, the church at large, and in our culture, there's some confusion around a lot of things but some confusion around things such as mercy, defining it, living it out, applying it. So that's what we want to do. We want to understand it, know what the Bible says about it, and then be able to live it out, be able to apply it. But he, in this article, again, called Mercilessness in the Name of Mercy, he writes, it goes without saying these days the church should be a place of mercy and kindness in a world of constant judgment, a refuge of compassion in a world of cruelty, a source of clemency in a time of canceling. Yes to all this, it's a mark of the church to embody a fierce commitment to welcoming sinners and exalting the Father who lavishes grace on the prodigal. But what form should mercy take is the question. What form should mercy take? What does mercy look like? What does it require? And he goes on, in an era of expressive individualism, 
in which the purpose of life is to find and express yourself, and in a time when we often turn to therapy to help us sort out the problems we face or look to our past and environment to better understand the sins we've committed, the aspiration to be a place of mercy or to show compassion to sinners is vague. Only the sinner fits into the frame. Mercy towards the sinned against maybe disappears, and even mercy towards the sinner gets diluted. So I think this is interesting in our culture to consider uh, conflating, confusing things, conflating, confusing words, and uh, leaving them undefined or maybe misdefined or, or defined incorrectly. So we hear a lot about love, compassion, mercy, kindness. These are all maybe buzzwords in the culture. This is the the highest aspiration to be a person who is compassion and kind. But these words, they they definitely don't seem to have a uniform definition. They definitely don't seem to have a consistent way of applying and understanding these words. And even among those who, who claim Christ, it seems that even mercy is defined and applied in a way that's, yes, contrary to what the Bible says. So we get to find in the scriptures today one place that addresses defining mercy. And if you will kind of move with me, I know we've all had an extra hour of sleep, so we're going to look at a few other places. We're going to let scripture interpret scripture for us. So we'll see what the Bible says about mercy. And so we're wanting to see, again, mercy and compassion. Are we seeing it applied and maybe defined in a way that leaves people in their sin? Is mercy and compassion shown in a way that shows indifference towards people's sin and their need for a savior, seeing no need to repent, no need to follow Jesus? So we have to know mercy, live out mercy without compromising truth, not divorcing mercy from truth, not divorcing ever love from truth. Jesus, so he uses these words, he's using the whole of the Beatitudes to describe a portrait of himself as the perfect one, and then also the attributes of his kingdom members as followers in his kingdom. So these words, they definitely have an objective definition, objective definition, and it's authored by the author of life. So that's where we're going this morning. So just to repick, uh, kind of review where we've been, remembering the context of this teaching, this famous, well-known, perfect teaching from Christ in Matthew chapter 5. Again, the multitudes, the crowds, the ones termed as the disciples, it's not just the 12, there are multitudes coming to hear him teach, and he is sitting down teaching them on the mountainside And he's instructing them. He's giving them an announcement of his coming kingdom. So there's going to be a contrast with the culture of the original audience to really understand. As Jesus comes in talking about the kingdom, the Jewish person would naturally have the question, well, who is allowed into the Messiah's kingdom? Who is eligible to enter this kingdom? And they they could ask rightly, am I righteous enough? Am I righteous enough to qualify for entrance? That's a a good question, but then understanding also they're seeing the only standard laid out for them of righteousness have been the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the scribes, 
and they have laid out uh, this standard of, of righteousness that isn't in line with what Jesus is going to reveal. The standard of righteousness by the religious leaders of the day has added to God's law and all these different external ways of judging holiness or righteousness. So Jesus, he begins this teaching with this contrast to the view of religion, the view of righteousness from the religious leaders in uh, the day. And he's talking about these blessing statements, the beatitudes, these qualities, poor in spirit. We've seen that. Those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the meek, they're not products of this Phara- uh, the Pharisees' righteousness. It, these aren't the external, obviously observed characteristics of people. They're concerned with the internal qualities of kingdom citizens, of Jesus' followers. So they come as one who's properly related to God through faith, these, these characteristics, these beatitudes. So when one places his complete trust in God, it's not going to necessarily look like the standard of righteousness set forth by the leaders. So we've been at looking at this portrait of Christ, this portrait of kingdom citizenship, and the question we've led out with is, is how can I find fulfillment? This is a look at the fulfilling life, the blessed life. Jonathan pointed out to us when we started this, this uh, study of the Sermon on the Mount, just looking at Jesus as king, de- declaring to his disciples his, uh, and to us in contemporary times how to be citizens of the kingdom. And we looked at last week that he said, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. So looking at the personal righteousness, the imputed righteousness, the widespread righteousness and justice in the world, the eternal righteousness, and seeing that Jesus only satisfies that desire and prayer for all forms of those righteousness. So the king is here and he's continuing to speak about who he is and who will be and how we will live as citizens in his kingdom. So look with me again, Matthew 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It's truth, it's power, it's integrity, it's clarity. I pray this morning, this morning that our understanding of mercy could be reinforced and strengthened in a way that draws us closer to you, in a way that turns our hearts to want more of you and to worship you and to live out a life of mercy, all to point people to their need for a Savior and to the only one who can save them, Jesus Christ. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So if there's a title for the message, we'll say, Get and Give. Get and Give. So is there confusion today? Confusion today over what it means to be merciful. We want to talk about, wade into that confusion once again. And then how do we avoid that? We want to avoid this confusion. And we want to be able to show true mercy. 
which, which is so strongly connected to how we're going to love people, how we're going to be compassionate, how we're going to be sympathetic, how we're going to be kind. So we don't want to be confused. How do we avoid that? So understanding the, what to consider. We need mercy. And then understanding so does everyone else. So if we want others to know Christ, we must be merciful. So we're going to see again a reminder of the blessed life, what that means for us, looking at what is mercy as defined by God, and then how have we been shown that mercy through Christ, and then how do we show mercy? How do we apply that to our lives? That's where we're headed. So blessed are the merciful. So those who, in other words, those who are compassionate, those who are compassionate towards others, sympathizing with the the, the distress of others. So those, they will be shown compassion by God. So that is the verse there. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So if you uh, give mercy, you will get mercy. And we want to clear up that can be disorienting. That can be uh, confusing as well, and we will clear that up. But that's what we read in the verse. So when Jesus mentions mercy, when he talks about it, what would his original audience, what would they be imagining? What would they understand when they hear his teaching, when they hear this word mercy, when they hear about being merciful? How would they define mercy? So if you would, just if you want to turn with me, we'll do a, a little Bible drill. Maybe it'll Keep us engaged, but you've had an extra hour of sleep. But but nonetheless, let's go to Exodus 34. We'll see a few glimpses of God's mercy and how the people, the the crowds that have gathered to Jesus, Jesus, how they might be understanding mercy. So in Exodus 34, verse 6, Moses is making the new tablets um, to include God's, God's law, the new tablets containing the Ten Commandments. And it says in Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So the mercy of God is, is the attribute of him forgiving many of the actions, forgiving many of the actions that are against him and his ways. So he is forgiving um, towards those who have offended him, who have committed offenses against him, who have broke his law. But then you see in, later in verse 7, but he doesn't excuse, doesn't excuse the iniquity of the guilty. So we want to see, we'll, we'll get more on that later. What does that look like? where there's grace, there's mercy, there's compassion shown, there's forgiveness, yet still holding people responsible for their sins. But that's a picture of mercy that we see there in Exodus 34. The next one from the prophet, uh, or from the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah 9.17, just a little bit further uh, to the right in, in the Old Testament there. So God's people Under Nehemiah's leadership, they were able to return to Jerusalem. They're going to rebuild the walls after uh, the Persian king and Persia have come in and and conquered the Babylonians. So they're able to return. And the people, they're mourning their sin. 
They're kind of rehashing. They're, they're going back in and stating the history of their people, how they've sinned against God. They're remembering that and mourning their sin and recounting this rebellion. This is God's people. So Nehemiah's, Nehemiah 9.17 says, they refused to obey. They're recounting the history of the people. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Apparently, they had even uh, had a leader appointed. They wanted to go back into slavery. This is after the Exodus. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. So we're seeing this, this same description, this very, very similar description of, of God, his character as being merciful. So he didn't turn away. God did not turn away, even though they were in overt rebellion, choosing to go against his ways, his people were. So he didn't turn away from them. He didn't forget them. He did not forsake them in spite of their rebellion against him. God is merciful. And then Psalm 86. Psalms uh, declares so much about God's character. We see so many examples to, to help us know God more and have these emotions expressed. So Psalm 86, verse 14 says, O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So that, that same description again by David, he's praying, he's trusting, he knows, he is knowing that he has, he has no grounds for, for worry, no grounds um, to think that God has abandoned him, God is with him, will guard him, will forgive him. David is confident in God, even in the midst of Horrible circumstances, distress in his life. What does he refer to? What does he call upon? What's his comfort? God, merciful and gracious. And then one more, if you will, if you'll humor me to go to Jonah 4.2. Jonah, a very famous uh, little uh, book of prophecy there between Obadiah and Micah. That helps you locate it. It's short. Jo, uh, Jonah 4.2, so he prays to the Lord. If you know anything about Jonah, um, it's a picture of maybe a, a misunderstanding and misapplication of mercy. This is Jonah's life. But he prays to the Lord and says, O Lord, is, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful. He knew that. Jonah knew that God had, in fact, been merciful to him by, by um, delivering him and rescuing him from the belly of the fish. He had experienced that and knew that. He said, God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So he was thankful for God for rescuing his, him, his own life. He knew God was merciful, but he was not thankful. Not thankful that God showed mercy to the, the pagan Ninevites upon their repentance. Uh, when they stop their evil ways, Jonah's not, not thankful for God's mercy in that example. So still, so you see there's, there's this, this common description of God as being gracious and merciful. Those two terms are normally packed together. Steadfast love, abounding in love, all these things. So we still, let's, let's try to define mercy. Still trying to define mercy. So we see, uh, again, so much of the descriptions are similar. And maybe you've heard a, a simple 
definition of the difference between grace and mercy before. I know Jonathan and I were talking this week, and, and he pegged it like we knew this, this same definition, so it may be pretty commonly known. But grace, maybe think of grace as giving what is not deserved. So we, we get Christ. We get heaven. We get forgiveness. We don't deserve that. God's grace. But then looking at the, the, the mercy, well, how is mercy different from grace? Mercy, mercy as being not getting what is deserved. So we don't get hell. We don't get Christlessness. We don't get hopelessness. God's mercy of putting a stop to our distress, putting a stop to the harm that's caused by just sin in the world. God's mercy to us. John Stott, the mid-late 20th century uh, pastor of All Souls Church in London, he simply defines it, mercy, as compassion for people in need. And he quotes another theologian stating the difference is that mercy always deals with what we see of pain, misery, and distress. So the results of sin, mercy cares for, or God's mercy is applied to the results, the misery caused by sin. Yes, sin done against us, but then our own sin as well, what it causes in our lives, God's mercy. But then grace deals with the sin itself, just declaring us uh, innocent, declaring us righteous, forgiveness of sin. That could be another way to describe the difference. So this, this compassion is described as divine attribute, this characteristic of God. It is sympathetic to the distress of others sympathetic to um, the distress and troubles, again, caused by one's own sin, but then also uh, caused by those who sin against us or sin against others. We want to alleviate that distress. We want to stop that pain, mercy being applied, alleviating distress and pain. So these descriptions of God, being listed together, all these different terms, so these two terms, they have two different meanings, Grace and mercy. Another scholar, he defines it like this. Grace is especially associated with men in their sins. Mercy is associated with men in their misery. So God's mercy is what comes in to bring comfort, to bring help in times of misery and distress. This is mercy. Compassion, sympathy for one in distress, one who's transgressed against you. Maybe you've been transgressed, you've been sinned against, you've been wronged, but you want to even take action to alleviate that distress. Take, taking action, moving in a way to alleviate pain and distress, wanting to help relieve misery. This is a, is a picture of mercy. This is the attribute of God we've, we've experienced. If you are of Christ or in Christ, you've experienced God's mercy and we know it's been a perfect, it's, a, it's an experience of perfect mercy when it's of the Lord. When it's from God, it's this picture of perfect mercy. So thinking of perfection and just thinking of the Beatitudes and, and Christ's description of, of, of himself. Yes, for us to uh, see as, as an adherence to um, his kingdom ways and his commands and his, his, uh, the, the portrait of being Christ-like but thinking of the perfect picture of Jesus and him being perfectly merciful. So, so his mercy is as good as it can possibly be. It's complete. Thinking of examples of, of, of perfection that maybe we know of in life, just to understand like Jesus, his mercy is perfect. 
and I go straight to like sports analogies or examples for perfection. Um, is I know my daughter knows a perfect score in cross country. We were at a cross country meet yesterday. Is Meredith in here? She would know. But maybe you don't know, like a perfect score in cross country is when you would have, um, you know, it's this distance race, usually a 5K, and your first five runners would be the, the first five uh, finishers in the race. They had a perfect score. That's a, that's a big deal if you're in uh, distance running or cross country. But thinking about maybe a perfect game in baseball. A perfect game includes the whole team because, you know, there can't be an error uh, committed by a fielder. There can't be a base runner. There can't be a walk. It has to be a perfect game, a diamond graded on its imperfections. You know, the grade of a diamond, if, if uh, you have diamond jewelry or anything, it's going to be worth more uh, the less imperfections it has. Perfect score on a test. I can't relate to that, but maybe that, that rings a bell with you if you've made a perfect score on the test. But we get, think of the perfect mercy we get from God. Perfect mercy. And it is this, he sent his one and only son into the world. He saw our wretched state and our suffering of living with sin and in sin. We were slaves to unrighteous and unholy living. We're lawbreakers, but he moved to action and dealt with our condition by dying in our place. This is mercy. This is the perfect picture of mercy. So if we can understand, if we can just grasp or comprehend just to the smallest percentage that we've experienced that perfect mercy, how much more should we want to show that mercy? So we must show that mercy. But remember how the verse was uh, termed here, how it was laid out? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So we must show mercy to obtain the mercy. Some would interpret this beatitude as God will be merciful to me if I show mercy to others. This is a common way of interpreting this verse. We also have uh, the statement maybe, if I forgive, I will be forgiven. We also have the statement at the end of the parable of the um, unforgiving servant. If you looked at Matthew 18, Peter comes to Christ and asks him, how many times will I forgive the brother who's wronged me? And, and Christ says an innumerable forgiveness. And then he goes into this parable about an, an, a cruel servant who's forgiven this massive debt by his master and then turns and demands that his, uh, his fellow servant pay him back. And when his fellow servant can't pay him back, he says, throw him in prison. Well, the master gets word of that and comes and says, I'll repeal my decision. And in fact, throws that uh, unforgiving servant into jail. And that parable ends with this. Christ says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So we look at verses like this and we could say, isn't the teaching clearly that I'm forgiven by God only to the extent that I forgive others? Well, hear me. We can't arrive at that conclusion. We cannot arrive at that conclusion or remain thinking this is the way forgiveness and mercy works. So why? Why can't we think that? Well, first, have you been perfectly forgiving and merciful at every point in your life? I have not. So, so if we haven't been perfectly forgiving, 
then we're not allowed to receive the perfect forgiveness, the perfect mercy of God. So I know I haven't been that. I haven't been completely uh, uh, forgiving. So that would mean I'm not completely forgiven by God for sins, for my sin. So we would all be condemned. If that was the translation, if that was the way to interpret this verse, we'd all be condemned. We'd all be condemned. We would not have peace with God. We would not have uh, the complete forgiveness that is required to enter into a a peaceful, eternal relationship with God. We must be, understand, we must be made completely holy, completely righteous to have a relationship with God and eternity with him. We have to be perfectly forgiven, and we don't perfectly forgive. We have to have been shown perfect mercy, and we don't. We don't. We haven't, and we cannot. We will not show perfect mercy. So it can't be that translation. And now second, if we applied this beatitude in this way, we would forfeit. We would forfeit God's grace. We would cancel the doctrine that's so clearly taught about God's unmerited, undeserved, and unearned favor to us. Would it not contradict Ephesians 2, 4, and 5? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved. 2 Corinthians 5, 19, that is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Titus 3, 5, just, just one more, just one more. We could go throughout the scripture. But Titus 3, 5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So interpreting scripture with scripture. What is the teaching here in the Beatitudes about being merciful? I like how Martin Lloyd-Jones, he phrases it, our Lord is really saying that I'm only truly forgiven when I'm truly repentant. To be truly repentant means that I realize I deserve nothing but punishment. And that if I'm forgiven is to be attributed entirely to the love of God and to his mercy and grace and nothing else at all. It's not a result of, well, I've been forgiving, I've shown mercy, therefore God will be forgiving and merciful towards me. Never, never believe that. So to show mercy, to show mercy, to be able to apply it, again, it's going to be an imperfect application, but to apply it, it has to start with the realization that I'm wrong, I've wronged the one who created me, my only hope is to turn from who I am and what I am and run into his merciful arms and find forgiveness, and he'll put a stop to my pain, my aches, my longings, my hurts, my destructive tendencies. Only God can do that through his mercy. Everything that's not made, it's, it's not that everything's made easy and perfect upon faith, upon receiving God's gift of grace, upon repentance, it's not made easy or perfect. We still face hardships, suffering, imperfection in this life, but our hope lies in him. Our hope lies in him who makes us new by giving us the righteousness of Christ. The perfection of Christ is given to us, is imputed to us. Understanding that Jesus, Jesus, the hero of it all, 
Jesus bled and died on the cross because of our wrong. So we didn't have to face the wrath of God against our sin. Our sin, suffering, and shame, it was hung on that cross. And we're completely forgiven. And Jesus didn't stay dead. Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose three days later, confirming his sacrifice, had paid it all. And our destiny is to be with him and like him in his resurrection forever. That's our glorious hope. That is our glorious hope. So here's the application. If we believe in God's mercy like that, perfect forgiveness and new life given to all who repent, then we will forgive those who wrong us. Going back to Exodus 34, God's forgiveness is perfectly given to all those who repent. Those who do not are still in their sins and will be judged rightly according to their iniquity. That's unforgiveness. So if we understand God's mercy like this, this new life we're given, we will forgive those who wrong us. We'll be in a posture, and it's not always easy, but we will be in a posture of mercy to those who talk about us behind our backs or who make fun of us or who do any number of things that cause us distress and suffering. Our posture will be like, that is who I am. That is who I have been to the perfect one. Therefore, he gives me the strength, and by his mercy, I can be merciful. We, so why? Why are we to show mercy? Why are we to show mercy? To feel good? So others will like us? It's like, you know, the, isn't it interesting, the, the panhandlers that are standing in front of the sign of the county or the city that say, please do not give money to these, this is unsafe for them, and please give it to a local charity? And it never fails, right? The car behind you is giving the cash out. You're just like, I don't know if this is helpful. (laughs) But does it make you feel good? If it's all about just us being merciful or in the name of mercy and compassion, just doing things that have no, no connection to truth, and it's just to make us feel good, just hear me, that is sentimentality. That is not love. That is not Christ-like. That is not mercy. Do gooding with no connection to truth. But we know truth. We know truth. We know absolute truth, and that is for everybody. That is the only way. The absolute truth of God's word is the only way people can be brought out of hopelessness, brought out of experiencing misery and distress and all the consequences of their sin and other sins, and and, and find life. It is the only way. Later in this teaching, and we'll we'll dig into it more in the, the months ahead, but look at Matthew 5, 16. Look. Look at verse 16. Why are we to be merciful? He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and really, really like you and really, really proclaim, uh, you know, compliment you and, and not talk bad about you. That's not what he says. That they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So we are to show mercy to others so that they might know Christ. How do we do this? In relationships where hurt and forgiveness may happen or or, or in our desire, in our desire to alleviate pain and suffering we see to those around us, think of in those instances when somebody sinned against us or when we see somebody obviously living in pain and distress, is, is the way I'm moving towards them, 
Is the way I'm taking an actionable step step towards mercy going to lead to me being able to proclaim Christ? Is there even a possibility that I may speak Jesus to a person? Is that a possibility? Is there a possibility for a spiritual conversation? Think of God is communicating through words. He is communicating through terms and, and, and words that we read and we want to define. In the same way, we have to speak about Jesus to people. They're going to understand and come to faith by God's grace and his power through the speaking, the communication of the good news of Jesus. How will this happen? Here's one application. Pray for this to happen. It works. Pray specifically. If you don't have a list, if you don't have a list written down of lost people you know, co-workers, neighbors, please write down that list and pray, God, give me, use me as your means of grace to be able to speak about Jesus to that person. It works. Just praying for neighbors and, and things, and all of a sudden, like, they'll respond to your text. All of a sudden, you find yourself like, I'm crossing paths with them on walking the dog, and I haven't seen them in a month. But you're just praying, give me opportunities. Pray for it. So where to start with applying this, knowing this is the picture of Christ. He died to give his life and, his king, uh, and, and in his kingdom that we would be blessed by being merciful. So if we want others to know Christ, we must be merciful. So who has God placed in your life to show compassion to? Think about the nearest and dearest. Think about those that, that are maybe in your house, those family members. First of all, the nearest and dearest. Are you praying? Are you praying that they desperately, that they know Christ? They, their distress, their pain, nothing will be alleviated forever without them knowing Christ. It is not enough for us to be nice. It is not enough to just do surface level helps to people. It is not enough. Do they know Christ? And then our neighbors, nearest and dearest than neighbors. Again, are you taking actionable steps to know your neighbors? Like Jonathan talked about, we are not here by accident. Where you live is not by accident. Are we taking actionable, tangible steps to know our neighbors and know their spiritual condition and then by God's grace and God's power be able to speak about Jesus with them? And then the nations, nearest and dearest neighbors and the nations. What are we doing? Taking actionable steps to get this good news to the ends of the earth, to the people who have never heard, to the people that we don't even know, we can't even relate to the pain, the suffering, their plight of life, just a different situation, just a different context. How are we leveraging so many things, including relationships and and relationships with one another, to get this good news and show mercy to the nations? This is the call of the church. So going back to Trevin Wax's article, the church is to be a place of mercy and love. The Bible's vision of mercy and love, however, is expansive, not reductionistic. We don't pit mercy against justice or compassion against doctrine or grace against morality. Christianity teaches that we're designed by God, that we have a destiny. We make choices within a moral framework designed to help us become what God has called us to be. And mercy does not suspend morality. Compassion doesn't dispense with doctrine. 
Kindness doesn't attribute all our sinful acts to wounds in our past. Grace doesn't keep us from making judgment calls. True mercy extends forgiveness towards those who have engaged in, in real moral wrong. It is understanding people have sinned just as we have, and they need repentance. They need forgiveness. They don't just need, don't just need food and a smile and money. That can be the pathway to showing them their need of repentance. But mercy, again, it has this objective definition. It's not just giving people what they want. It's understanding what everyone needs. They need Christ. It has an objective definition that God puts a stop to our suffering, guilt, and hopelessness caused by our real offenses against him. There's no excuse. We have really offended him. And we've offended other image bearers. And his mercy that ends everything, the hurt and pain and suffering caused by that, our real sin against him and others. His mercy leads us to repent and believe in the only Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the mercy of God. This is the same mercy that we are, extend, we are to extend to others and for the same purpose. Not so others will feel good about themselves or feel good about us or think we're really nice, but they would turn from sin and believe in Jesus. To God be the glory. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, it has been a heavy week to reflect on my lack of mercy. I want to show mercy to others more and consistently so that you are glorified and honored. And so that dead hearts can be made alive through your power. And that people, the nearest and dearest, my neighbors and the nations, would know you and experience that healing hope and alleviation of the distress and the pain and the suffering caused by living without you. Help us, Father. And I pray that in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen.